Hi, everyone. I'm Kate Beatty. I'm an employment and labor partner at Foley and Lardner here in Boston, and I represent management side in in all manners of labor issues from negotiations to litigating unfair labor practice charges. So good to be here today. Hi, everyone. My name is Damon Giovanni. I'm also a management side uh, labor and employment attorney at Morgan Brown and Joy. Um, my practice largely consists of uh, management and union labor relations and litigations at the National Labor Relations Board and um, federal and state courts. And excited to be here with all of you today. Hi, everyone. My name is Paige McKissick. I'm a partner at Siegel Reitman here in Boston. Um, and I'm on the other side of the bench representing um, unions and employees um, in all matters of labor law and also individual employment cases um, in wage disputes, discrimination, and other individual employment matters. I'm excited for the panel today. And I think for everyone, if there, we can certainly reserve time at the end of the the webinar for questions, but if you have any burning questions throughout, particularly on Damien's kind of hot topic with the, the confidentiality provision issue, we're happy to take questions and, and have discussion along the way. Okay, so to quickly run through today's agenda, we're going to give some context on the general counsel's memos, both from 2021 and from just last week, or maybe this week. Um, and then we'll work through some of the key decisions over the last year or two, including confidentiality and non-disparagement, employer work rules, issues related to union organizing, including captive audience meetings, and then consequential damages and employee-employer communications. As some of you may recall, back in August of 2021, the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, Jennifer Abruzzo, issued her first memorandum. And this was with the, the new Biden administration and was really seen as a as a reaction and a and a rebuttal to a lot of the decisions that had come out during the Trump administration. So in her memo, which went to the regional offices of the National Labor Relations Board, the general counsel identified existing board decisions that she believed were contrary to the board's congressional mandate because they compromised workers' statutory rights. So many, if not all of them, were Trump-era decisions that overturned previous NLRB precedent. So as a result of this memo, the general counsel asked or directed the regional directors to put a long list of cases and issues on what she referred to as the mandatory submission list. So that meant that if an issue came before a regional office, like here in Boston, it's region one, and it was on one of it was on this list, that meant that the regional director had to submit to the division of advice that case and that issue so that the division of advice, which is the part of the National Labor Relations Board that issues memos, directives to regional directors as to how to address an unfair labor practice charge, for example, whether to dismiss it or to go to complaint, that these were the cases that were required for the regions to go and ask the Division of Advice for guidance on the issue. And it, this 
dealt with a wide array of issues everywhere, everything from employee handbooks to the employer's duty to bargain. So it was, I think, over 40 different cases that were issued in this memo as mandatory submission cases. So um, one thing that uh, I'll mention is, is if you don't practice labor law, one thing that we all deal with is that it's constantly changing. And so just days ago, we got this general counsel memo um, update to the, to the memo that she issued in 2021. Um, and essentially what it lays out um, is the progress that she sees she's made since 2021 on um, the cases that have been decided by the board and the issues that she sees as still outstanding um, and that remain uh, mandatory advice submissions. The other thing I should also note is just, uh, again, for those who are less familiar with how the board operates, um, the general counsel is like the head prosecutor for the, for the agency, um, which has uh, prosecutorial discretion. You know, they decide which cases to prosecute or not, um, and they can decline to prosecute cases that even technically present violations of the act. So um, these memos are really setting forth um, the issues that the general counsel views as Im implicating important rights under the act um, to try to get those cases before the board for a decision. Uh, so this new memo that was issued um, uh, goes through sort of the 46 board decisions that were identified um, as presenting important issues from the 2021 memo um, and narrows that down to about 15 um, remaining issues that fall in the category of mandatory advice. Um, and those, I won't go through through every one, um, but you know, there's, there's a case that implicates that what's called the inherently con uh, concerted doctrine, which is what kinds of protected concerted activity does the board find um, inherently co uh, concerted. Um, there's cases involving uh, what happens to terms in a collective bargaining agreement post-contract expiration, um, there's uh, a case that involves uh, the union's predisciplinary uh, interview right to information. Um, so, so there's there's a host of them that that are left, and that uh, the general counsel is still directing regional offices to um, submit those cases to advice um, if you know when they see them coming up in charges. And um, she also in that memo goes through as I mentioned, sort of the progress that she sees the board has made on that 2021 memo um, and, and, and identifies the cases uh, where the board has made decisions on those issues. That includes a case called Tesla, um, which returned to a longstanding precedent um, that employer restrictions on the display of union insignia, meaning like buttons, uh, wearing buttons, pro-union buttons or shirts or things like that. Um, if an employer restricts those, that action is presumptively unlawful and violates Section uh, 8A1 of the Act. Uh, she also highlights McLaren-McComb, which is next on the agenda, and it's a, been a real hot topic over the last couple of weeks, um, and Damien will be walking us through that decision um, and another general counsel memo, which was just issued a couple of days ago. Um, she uh, mentioned Bexar County 2, which is an organizing case that I'll be talking about in a little while. Uh, also a case called Thrive, um, which Kate will, will, will discuss. Um, so we'll be going over a lot of um, 
uh, where the board uh, has actually issued decisions um, in, in favor of, of, well, supporting where the general counsel wanted to see them land back in 2021. So, as most of you that are probably reading the daily labor reports and other news feeds, the um, the McLaren decision, which came out in February, um, which has a lot of uh, large impact not only on employers that have unionized uh, employees in their workplace, but also ones that don't. Um, and and as always, um, on some of the you know, as we all know. The National Labor Relations Act applies to everyone, not just a unionized employee, but any employee. They've got rights under the act. And many, many times uh, folks that don't have unionized employees either aren't paying attention to it or don't really need to because some of it doesn't bleed into their workplace um, for whatever reason. This one likely will and has. Um, and as, as Paige just mentioned, this decision came out in February, which I'm going to talk about. Um, and then we've gotten some further guidance just this week, um, which... We're sort of working through, we're going to talk about it today, um, but as Bill Parcells used to say, we reserve the right to change our minds here as things are developing here, but we're going to talk about sort of the here and now, um, and if folks have questions about this or any of the cases we're going to be talking about, um, feel free to chime in uh, on the chat piece. But um, as folks, uh, practitioners on both sides know that in you know, recent years, employers have been required to adapt to several different efforts um, at state and federal levels to restrict confidentiality and non-disparagement clauses and settlement agreements. These are things that have been there for a long time. Folks have different views about how, how impactful they are or how easy they are to enforce, but there has certainly been this trend recently to start restricting the use of those things. And in February, the NLRB sort of chimed in uh, with their view of this and weighed in in a case called McLaren-McComb. Um, and this explicitly overruled two 2020 Trump board decisions, one called Baylor University, and one called IGT, which had provided a more relaxed standard for governing the use of such clauses and severance agreements. Um, and I just want to point one thing out for those that aren't familiar. Um, I, I know I will, and likely Paige and Kate will as well. When we refer to the sort of Trump board or the Obama board uh, or the Biden board, it's not meant to be a political statement or a you know four-letter word uh, in the world of labor relations. The, the sort of reason why practitioners refer to them that way is that under Republican presidential uh, administrations, the NLRB tends to shift towards employer-friendly decisions. And under Democrat presidential administrations, once the board's in place, it tends to lean more towards union and pro-employee type decisions. So it's just important to keep in mind for those working in this field that if you talk about a decision under a certain administration, um, to keep in mind that, you know, like now, Trump board decisions um, may be at the risk of being overturned and vice versa when that happens. So I just wanted to point that out for a second. But, um, you know, generally speaking to uh, when, when folks enter into settlement agreements, there's this desire for finality of the relationship. So if an employee is fired for whatever reason, um, if the parties are able to reach an agreement, um, there's a desire, a lot of times from the employer side, but generally speaking, that parties are going to walk away. There's not going to be any sort of negative discussion about the employer and the employee, and, and the hope is that that ends the relationship. Um, and oftentimes, there's a desire, again, mostly on the employer side, that there's not going to be discussions publicly about um, issues or allegations about the workplace, um, and that both sides won't disparage each other, um, sort of as that happens. 
after the board's decision in McLaren, that's become much more challenging for employers. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as we all know, Section 7 provides employees the right not only to engage in protected conduct, but to speak critically of, of their workplace. If they've got issues that affect their terms and conditions of employment. Um, and under the new board's new rule that was set forth in McLaren, the mere proffer of a severance agreement that, quote, unlawfully conditions receipt of sever severance benefits on the forfeiture of statutory rights, unquote, violates Section 8A1 of the Act. Um, so in McLaren, the board had held that the language of a severance agreement alone, without the need for any additional evidence, of course, of behavior by an employer could potentially violate the Act. Um, and in reviewing the severance agreements at issue in McLaren, the board found that broad confidentiality and non-disparagement provisions were unlawful because they tended to interfere with the free exercise of an employee's rights under the act. Um, and, you know, and so holding the board reaffirmed uh, longstanding sort of precedent, I suppose, that noted that public statements by employees about the workplace are central to the exercise of employee rights under the act. Um, notably, before we get into what that means, the board did not hold that all confidentiality and non-disparagement provisions are per se violations of the Act, um, and it actually didn't address the impact of the inclusion of express carve-outs and severance agreements for the protection of an employee's rights under the Act. So what does that mean? Um, you know, oftentimes, I would imagine folks that have drafted these things will have carve-outs that say nothing about the agreement prevents an individual from participating in a board proceeding or that it in any way should interpret it to restrict Section 7 rights under the Act. A lot of that's common language in severance agreements. Um, the one, the, the agreements in McLaren didn't even have those, so the board didn't specifically address that. Um, but nonetheless, the board's language strongly suggested that it um, is going to look unfavorably upon attempts to regulate employee communications about the workplace through severance agreements and, and otherwise. So essentially, again, the right to speak critically uh, of the workplace, um, what, what the board has said is including language that restricts that or, or imposes some confidentiality or non-disparagement broadly may be interpreted to chill the Section 7 rights of employees, even if they're no longer employees um, with the employer. So that was the decision. Um, a lot of us have spent time over the last three or four weeks you know, advising clients and discussing how this might be interpreted and applied moving forward, whether existing agreements needed to be uh, amended, um, whether previous agreements needed to be addressed. And as, as Paige mentioned just, a, just two days ago, um, the general counsel issued another memo, 23-05, to all regional directors, officers in charge, and resident officers, um, which was intended to provide guidance on how they should interpret and apply McLaren. Um, I will tell you from the management side perspective, it's added a little bit more confusion to it and how these things are going to be applied. But I wanted to hit some of the highlights um, for everyone in terms of things uh, that, at least as a general counsel view, should be um, applied with regard to McLaren and, and these types of um, agreements. And as always, and somewhat unfortunately, with this pendulum swing back and forth at the NLRB, depending on which side you represent, the memo is being met with differing opinions. So. Um, the first, the first, um, one of the first highlights, and again, there, there are several, I'm not going to cover all of them, but I would encourage you to read it. Um, it's just GC memo 23-05, which has more information about it. But some of the highlights from the general counsel's memo, um, in, in, in her view, it doesn't actually matter if the employee signs the agreement. 
Um, you know, according to the GC, whether the agreement is actually signed is really irrelevant for purposes of finding a violation of the National Labor Relations Act. Um, you know, as the mere proper language from the, uh, the decision itself, she has interpreted it as that inherently coerces employees by conditioning severance benefits on the waiver of statutory rights, such as the right to engage in future protected concerted activities and the right to file or assist in the investigation of the prosecution of charges with the board. So naturally, this raises some questions about the settlement negotiations themselves. Um, does the mere discussion of a non-disparagement and confidentiality violate the act? Um, do draft agreements that include some provision that doesn't ultimately make it to the end, does that violate the act? Um, oftentimes, settlement discussions are, are confidential for, for reasons that are obvious. And, and the question of whether just talking about it is going to be viol a violation of the act is something that's sort of been raised with her memo. Um, second, um, as some of you may know, the National Labor Relations Act does not uh, afford protections to supervisors. So if your statutory, there's no statutory right as a supervisor under Section 211 um, protections under the act. Um, except for there are cases that say if, if a supervisor is retaliated for refusing to engage in um, certain behavior, that there are some protections there. So the general counsel, again, in her memo, opined that it would violate the act um, by disciplining a supervisor for refusing to proffer an overbroad severance agreement. That makes some sense, um, given sort of the, the precedent. But she also states that she thinks it would violate the act if an overly broad severance agreement is proffered to a supervisor in connection with protected conduct and any sort of reasonable interpretation that might make them believe they can't participate in a board investigation. This seems like a bit of a stretch in terms of applying it that way. Time will tell how this sort of plays out in practice, but that was one of the things that stood out with her memo that, um, that supervisors may have protections here with regard to proffers of, of confidentiality and non-disparagement, which are they're not naturally afforded rights under the act. Um, one of the more difficult things I think that will, uh, in the interpretation of McLaren is the National Labor Relations Act has a six month statute of limitations um, for filing an unfair labor practice charge. Um, so if, if there is some allegation of a violation of the act that an employer union knows about, they've got six months to file a charge with the NLRB. Um, so the general counsel opined that these types of agreements and McLaren, well, let me, let me back up. She believes the McLaren decision will be applied retroactively, which isn't abnormal with a lot of these, with some of these cases. Um, but the, the natural sort of reading of that is that settlement agreements that had been entered into beyond six months aren't actionable. And, and those types of, as she might review, overly broad uh, provisions um, that may violate the act. One could argue that limitations period has run out, at least on agreements that have happened outside the six months. Her view is that as long as the severance agreement terms are being maintained, so for instance, if an employee is terminated, you've got a non-disparagement clause in an agreement that is you know, still being uh, still in effect. And if it turned out the employees made disparaging marks in violation of an agreement that if an employee wanted to um, engage in some sort of action against that employee, the mere fact that that potential is there, the general counsel views that as a continuing violation. So essentially, any potential agreement that had ever been en entered into 
um, that has, as she views, these broad uh, restrictive confidentiality non-disparagement could be actionable now. Um, and she sort of issued some general advice to the public that um, while it may not cure years old proffers of overbroad severance agreements, employers should consider contacting former employees to inform them of the overbroad provisions and that they are now null and void and that the employer will not seek to enforce those provisions. As you might imagine, this likely would create a lot of, a lot of issues. Um, it's likely something that employers may not um, accept the invitation to do. A lot of times, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, the finality of a severance agreement, um, hopefully if that happens and both sides have separated, there's usually not ongoing issues. But the, the question of whether employers should be required to sort of reach out to any former employee that have signed an agreement is going to be something that's going to need further interpretation. Um, and then she also goes through, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, a, a savings clause in, in an agreement. Oftentimes, these severance agreements will have um, language in there that says, you know, you've waived these rights. However, Nothing in this agreement prevents you from, you know, participating in an NLRB investigation or, or filing a charge or things like that. She lists out nine different rights that um, that employers should consider including in their severance agreements, um, and then goes on to sort of list broadly protections that employees have under the act. So some of the uh, uh, examples she used is, you know, to include language that employees continue to have the right to organize a union to negotiate with their employer concerning wages, hours, and other terms and conditions of employment, um, that they're not prohibited from talking about or soliciting for a union during non-work time, that they're allowed to discuss wages and other working conditions, that they're allowed to strike and picket depending on its purpose and means, um, that they're allowed to take photographs or other recordings, um, or that they don't have to do any of those things. Um, the, Again, if you read this broadly, she's essentially sort of wanting employers to lay out rights that are sort of inherent in the act now, um, including employees that will no longer be working in that um, place of employment. So there's a lot to digest here with her memo. Um, there's a lot of questions, I think, still to be answered in, in how the board's going to interpret McLaren um, and, frankly, how regional directors are going to interpret it. So um, I would encourage everyone to take a look at the, the memo that she just issued. And of course, um, either reach out to, to um, your counsel or if you are a counsel to sort of keep an eye on these updates, because this I think is going to be an evolving um, issue, not only for employers, as I mentioned, with, with labor, with unions, um, but ones that don't. Um, and ultimately, the concern will be what impact, if any, this will have on um, the enforceability of some of these severance agreements. Um, so there's a little bit of uh, uncertainty at the at right now um, and, and that may we may be living in that uncertainty for a little while. Um, Paige and Kate, I don't know if you had anything to add on the McLaren piece before I moved on, but um, and certainly if there are questions to be asked at the end, we can address those. Yeah, I would just add that you know, in in principle, I think this is the right decision um, and and a correct interpretation of the act. Uh, but practically speaking, you know the devil's advocate view might be that the board has taken something of value away from employees, right? Who otherwise want to sell their silence for a better severance. Um, and we see that a lot. Um, so I think employees sort of intuitively understand that their silence and agreement to confidentiality has a value. And so um, they're going to have 
less leverage in that situation to get more money um, in, in a severance agreement. They'll still have, you know, the ability to agree to a release of claims, but um, you're sort of taking confidentiality and non-disparagement off the table. Uh, I think I think that makes um, has a little bit less of an impact, for example, in like a layoff situation where those kinds of terms maybe are not as important to employers, but where you have sort of a contentious employment dispute between an employee and an employer um, with facts that the employer might view as potentially harmful if they were publicized, um, those provisions then become, you know, pretty valuable. Um, and so this is, I think it's going to have a real practical effect on employees' leverage in those kinds of settlement negotiations. I agree. Representing employers, of course, the confidentiality piece is so important. And as Paige notes, there is a value to it and not motivated at all by wanting to chill Section 7 rights. So this really sweeps in a lot more than just the Section 7 rights. Practically speaking, in terms of trying to draft around this or draft in compliance with this decision, I think employers were already struggling with trying to keep separation agreements somewhat streamlined and not have a ton of legalese and particularly multi-state employers that are grappling with complying with many different laws in a separation agreement. And now with the general counsel's memo this week, enumerating those nine specific rights that, that arguably should be enumerated in a separation agreement, just practically speaking from a from a drafting perspective, makes it a, a lot more difficult to have, a, or significantly more difficult to have a streamlined, you know, couple page separation agreement when there might be, you know, half a page of, of savings clause or disclaimer language that a lot of employees will say, I don't even know what this is. I don't think it applies to me or, or frankly, I, I'm not concerned because I, I want to resolve this and want to have the, the benefit of the severance or whatever the package is overall. Yeah. And Kate, that's a good point. I, I mean, oftentimes too, when there's a, when there feels pressure to add in sort of specific things in the savings clause, and then there's a question, when does that stop? Do you start enumerating every right under every statute? And and then if you miss some, does that mean that those weren't technically waived and things like that? So, you know, you know, there's a question in the chat about example of language. So as I mentioned, the memo has some broad uh, examples that, that she might find to be helpful in that. Um, oftentimes, um, it, it's a little bit more narrow, as Kate mentioned, and it's really to sort of say the rights that you can't waive, like participating in a board proceeding, oftentimes agreements that sort of are, are, are sort of valid will have that in there. Um, right now, the question that I think remains a little bit unanswered is um, whether or not employers are going to need to go through the steps of listing out every single protection under the act and other things. So, um, but I would at least from her view, I would, the general counsel's view, I would check and see sort of what she's written there. But generally speaking, I think Kate's right. Um, savings clause are not meant to be 10, 15, 20 pages. So, um, so on that piece of it, but again, if folks have other questions as we're going through this, um, we are willing and, and happy to answer them. 
So if you go to the next slide, um, one of the other kind of areas I would say of of the law with regard to um, non-unionized workplaces has been this question of, of employee work rules. And um, this has been yet another kind of pendulum swing back and forth in recent years that has caused some um, confusion with employers and frankly, you know, what parts of their um, handbooks and what part of their rules would, would violate the act and, and what wouldn't. So just sort of a very brief history of that uh, and a case called Lutheran Heritage, which ironically was a 2004 Bush board decision. Um, it talked about whether or not a decision, um, I'm sorry, a work rule would violate the National Labor Relations Act. And the decision in that was even if the work rule did not explicitly restrict activity protected by Section 7, the board would find a violation upon a showing that one, employees could reasonably construe the language to prohibit Section 7, um, that the rule was promulgated in response to union activity, or that the rule has been applied to restrict the exercise of Section 7 um, rights in the past. So when the Obama board was put in place, they sort of took this framework and, and in my opinion, broadly interpreted number one. I think that was where a lot of these cases started coming from. And, and again, a lot of times, employers that have never had any interaction with the National Labor Relations Act were suddenly finding charges against them, suggesting that their handbook policies violated Section 7. Um, and a lot of those decisions, the, the, the key phrase there is, what could someone reasonably construe uh, as being a violation of the act? There were a lot of cases where they found, the board found employer work rules to violate that, um, where someone that's looking at it for the first time might think, I, I don't see how that could do that. So, you know, a, a provision in a handbook that says we're going to treat everyone respectfully. In certain situations, the board found that that could be interpreted as an employee can't criticize uh, management about how they're managing the workplace. That's sort of a an easier one, but this made its way down into some very uh, confusing decisions about, again, language like that that seemed generally innocuous that was found to be violation of the act. In 2017, um, under the Trump board, there was a decision issued in a case called the Boeing Company, um, which was later refined in a case called LA Specialty Produce in 2019. That replaced the Lutheran Heritage Reasonably Construed Standard, and it had a new test. It basically said, um, when the board evaluates a facially neutral policy, so as long as it didn't say, you are prohibited from talking about wages with your employees, um, that... Uh, that when reasonably interpreted would potentially interfere with the exercise of the National Labor Relations Act, the board would evaluate two things. One, the nature and extent of the potential impact on NLRA rights, and then two, the legitimate justifications associated with that rule. Um, and then it announced in that case, three categories of rules um, and how they would look at those. So for, for so category one, um, whether the, the rule, uh, when reasonably interpreted, does not prohibit or interfere with exercise of MLR rights or two, potential adverse impact on protected rights is outweighed by the justifications associated with that rule. So examples of a category one rule was a no camera requirement maintained by Boeing and rules requiring employees to abide by basic standards of civility. Um, the board found that those were okay under Boeing um, and uh, which would probably would not have been under Lutheran Heritage, I'm going to quickly go through these just for time purposes. Category two about individualized scrutiny in each case as to whether the rule would prohibit or interfere with NLRA rights, and if so, whether any adverse impact of NLRA protected conduct is outweighed by 
legitimate justifications. And then um, the category three is that the board would designate unlawful to maintain certain rules would be unlawful to maintain because they would prohibit or limit um, NLRA rights. Um, and you know those might be, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, a rule that prohibits employees from discussing wages or benefits with one another. That's inherently sort of black and white would violate the act. <clears throat> as the administration shifted to the Biden board um, on January 6, 2022, as it says in the slide, the board um, issued notice in a case called Stericycle, which invited uh, the filing of briefs to afford parties and interested in Amici to the opportunity to address the following questions. One, should the board continue to adhere to the standard adopted by Boeing? Um, that seems highly unlikely that, that they're gonna find that they should, just given the way these have gone back and forth, it seems that's gonna be, um, the answer is gonna be negative to that. Um, and then in what respects, if any, should the board modify the existing law addressing the maintenance of employer work rules to better ensure that, and I won't read those, but. Um, a through C there, um, different things that they should interpret. Um, I'll just end with this. Uh, looking at these, there doesn't appear to be much different in the difference in the analysis of the words used under one case, you know, Lutheran heritage to Boeing to these questions that are being asked here. A lot of it's in the interpretation of it um, and, you know, a reasonableness standard. So it, the view from most practitioners on both sides is there's going to be an overturning of Boeing. There's going to be a new analysis. It's going to likely have similar language, but how it's interpreted by the board is sort of remains to be seen. So um, I think I've gone over my allotted time. So I'm going to pass it over to um, Paige and Kate for the remainder of the show here. Thanks, Jamie. All right. So I'm going to talk about a few organizing cases. Um, the first is American Steel, uh, which the board issued in 2022. And this um, this is a case that addresses one of those issues like work rules that Damien spoke about. The pendulum has just swung back and forth over and over again, depending on you know which administration is in power and the corresponding composition of the board. And the issue in American Steel is how an appropriate bargaining unit is defined. Um, and this becomes important when a union um, is organizing an employer um, and defines which group of employees will be included in uh, what's called the bargaining unit. The, this issue on the definition of an, an appropriate bargaining unit has a long tortured history. And if you want to uh, learn more about it, you should read this case because it, it does go through the whole history. Um, and the issue really comes out of Section 9B of the National Labor Relations Act, which directs the board to decide in these cases um, which the unit that's appropriate for the purposes of collective bargaining. Um, and so in American Steel, uh, the board uh, overruled uh, uh, PCC Structurals and Boeing, um, which were uh, uh, decisions issued by the um, board under the prior administration and returned to a standard that um, uh, was called specialty healthcare. Um, and the test under that uh, decision um, is basically that the employees in the petition for unit, which is defined by the union when it files an election petition, uh, must be readily identifiable as a group. Um, so for that, the board is looking at things like the job classifications, the departments that the employees are in, their functions, the locations, their skills, things like that. Um, so that's part one. And also looking at whether the employees in the petition for unit share a, quote, community of interest, 
um, which is a term of art that has um, been interpreted uh, many different ways over the years. But essentially, um, what this decision means in practice is that the board is going to give a lot of deference to how the union defines uh, an, uh, the bargaining unit when it files its petition. Um, so the board said the petition for unit just has to be an appropriate unit. It doesn't have to be the most appropriate possible grouping of employees. Um, it just has to be an appropriate one. Um, the employer, on the other hand, um, can argue um, that, uh, it, you know, often comes in and argues that the petition for unit is not an appropriate bargaining unit. And what the board said in American Steel is that um, when an employer does that, it has to show that the excluded employees um, that the employers arguing should, arguing should be included share, quote, overwhelming community of interest. Um, with the, the petition for unit, um, so much so that the petition for unit would be irrational without including them. So this is a very high burden for employers to meet to try to change how the union, union has defined the bargaining unit in its petition. Um, the particular facts of the case are kind of just the typical ones that we see. Um, it was the group, it was the Iron Workers Union, and it was a petition for journeymen and apprentices. Um, the employer came back and said that the smallest appropriate unit also had to include other classifications, namely painters, drivers, and fabricators who were all working in the same shop. Um, and so the board decision in American Steel essentially said, we're sending this back to the uh, administrative law judge to, to reconsider the issue um, consistent with the new standard that they set forth. Uh, I think uh, the practical effect of this decision is that it's just going to make it easier for unions to win elections um, and to get through the process more quickly uh, because the union will have you know, broader power to define how the bargaining unit, um, the scope of the unit. Um, and the way that it's going to do that is to select the unit where it has majority support through its organizing campaign. Um, and it's going to be much harder for employers to succeed. Um, by defend, you know, arguing that the unit should include or exclude certain other workers, um, which might change or dilute the majority support that the union has um, in the unit as it's defined in the selection petition. Um, the other thing I'll just note quickly about American Steel is that uh, the case applies retroactively to all pending cases, which is, as Damien mentioned, kind of. Um, consistent with the board policy. And I'll add that from the management or employer perspective, there's a concern often with the smaller bargaining units because as Paige noted, oftentimes a, a union will propose a bargaining unit where they have the most confidence that they have a, a, an overwhelming majority of, of pro-union votes, but then that gives the union potentially a toehold within the employer so that they they once they have maybe a 10 or 12 person bargaining unit, they get to know more about the company and, and might be able to make further inroads within a company. Right. Um, and I should have mentioned that uh, they're often called, uh, this is often referred to as like a return to micro units. Um, and that's sort of what I think Kate is referring to these 
tiny units um, that that unions have been successful in organizing under this under the standard um, under the specialty healthcare and now American Steel standard. All right, so the next case we have is um, called Bexar County. This one also uh, has to do with organizing and specifically um, with organizing uh, rights of uh, the employees of contractors. So um, it essentially restores the rights of workers who are employed by a contractor uh, to engage in protected concerted activity at the site of their actual workplace. So these are employees who are often working um, on property owned not by their direct employer, but by a third party. Um, and the facts of this case, uh, just briefly, these were musicians who worked for a symphony employer, primarily uh, working and performing at a performing arts center. Um, and uh, the employer on one occasion had used uh, recorded instead of live music for a particular performance uh, when some employees had previously been on furlough. And in response to that, the employees leafleted in front of the center. So again, um, on the property, not of their employer, the symphony, but on the property of this performing arts center where they worked. The center and the police came, expelled them from the property and you know, said, go across the street to the public sidewalk. Um, and as a result, they had less access to um, the patrons of the center to distribute their leaflets and, you know, convey their message to the public. Um, so those are the facts that came before the board. Um, this was a decision that was originally or case that was originally issued um, by uh, the Trump board in 2019. Um, it went up to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and then came back down. So. Um, on remand from the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, the board ruled that a uh, property only owner can only exclude employees of its contractors from engaging in protected activity on the work site if the activity would significantly interfere with the use of the property um, or where exclusion is justified by another legitimate business reason. Um, so this goes back to, again, to a prior board standard in a case called New York, New York Hotel and Casino from 2011. And part of the reasoning under, um, behind the decision was, you know, your right to engage in protected activity, concerted, uh, protected concerted activity at your actual workplace is critical um, to your ability to exercise those rights. All right. Um, and finally, this is a big one. I'm going to try to run through it a little quickly because I am cognizant that we're running out of time. Um, but uh, so captive audience meetings, for those who are not familiar, uh, are mandatory meetings held by an employer. They can be in a group or an individual setting uh, where an employer essentially talks to employees about the union. Um, this is, often occurs in the context of an organizing drive at an employer. Um, and uh, often the message from the employer is urging them, urging employees not to vote for the union. So these kinds of captive audience meetings have been lawful for a long time. So this is not a case where decisions have gone back and forth. This is actually a case that's been, or uh, uh, the case at issue Babcock and Wilcox was decided in 1948. So we're talking 75 years um, of precedent establishing that these kind of captive audience meetings held by employers are lawful and do not violate the act. 
as long as they don't occur within 24 hours of a union election. And there's no real limits on how frequently they can be conducted, who can uh, conduct them, um, and employees can be lawfully disciplined for refusing to attend. Um, the employer can't, uh, you know, uh, threaten employees or make promises. Um, but other than that, um, they're pretty fair game. Um, and there's uh, an interesting long history to these, uh, the Babcock and Wilcox decision, and I won't go through it all. But at one point, um, the state of the law was that employers could hold captive audience meetings as long as unions were afforded um, the same access to employees to also deliver their message. That changed um, with Babcock and Wilcox, and then that's been the state of the law since then that employers can hold captive audience meetings. They don't have to grant unions similar access to employees during an organizing campaign. So the general counsel, once again, um, you know, identified this in her memo in 2021. And again, in the one that was just issued a few days ago, and she wants the board to overrule Babcock and Wilcox and, and find that these kinds of meetings uh, violate section 8A1 of the act because they essentially force employees to listen to employer speech about unions and about other Section 7 activities um, under the threat of discipline. Uh, if not explicit, it's inherently coercive to require employees to sit through these kinds of meetings. And um, the case that's pending before the board and most likely to reach a decision is a case called Chemex. Um, and in that case, the general counsel has argued that employees have a protected right not to listen to employer speech, um, that these kinds of meetings fall outside of the employer's free speech protections. Um, and a little bit interesting because she's relying on amendments to the National Labor Relations Act in, Act in 1947, um, which added, uh, you know, originally the act said employees have a right to engage in protected concerted activities. And when the amendments came out, it was the parallel was added, which is employees have a right not to engage in protected activities. And she's sort of relying on those amendments to say um, that these kinds of meetings are, are unlawful. Um, gonna fast forward a bit. There's two, there've been um, two other cases that are on the slide, Starbucks um, and Amazon. Um, essentially the ALJ's uh, administ administrative law judges in those cases were bound to follow the existing board law, um, which is that captive audience meetings are, um, are lawful and don't violate the act. And so the charges in those cases were dismissed, um, but those are also cases in the pipeline on the way up to the board. And cases that are certainly getting a lot of press. Anecdotally, we've also seen at least region one scrutinizing meetings that are billed by the employer as optional. So not mandatory meetings, but because they're either the manner in which they're held, like during work hours and at the work in the workspace and who's holding them. For example, if the CEO of a company is holding the meeting, even though it's framed as optional, I think the region is taking the view potentially that it's really not optional because an, an employee is going to feel implicitly pressured to attend a meeting that the CEO has personally invited them to. So I think the 
this will be interesting to see how the board takes both the the traditional definition of a captive audience meeting and and maybe more expansively views it. Yeah, and just really quickly on that point, I mean, general counsel has laid out essentially um, a warning that employers would have to give employees before they hold meetings discussing a union organizing drive. Um, And it's along the lines of like a Johnny's Poultry type warning, which Kate, I know you'll touch on in a bit. Um, but, you know, one, that attendance is voluntary, that employees are free to leave at any time. And if employees don't attend, they won't suffer any reprisals. Um, and that also that, you know, employees who do attend are not going to get any additional benefits uh, for doing so. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got, a, we have just over 10 minutes. I'm going to go through these last cases, which are also noteworthy, but not as pressing as the ones that that Paige and Damien just went through. Um, so the the decision in Thrive, uh, which was just issued in December of 2022, greatly expanded the potential damages for a violation of the NLRA. So historically, if an employee or union files an unfair labor practice charge with the NLRB and there's a finding that the the employer violated the National Labor Relations Act, the damages for such a violation have typically been limited to back pay or reinstatement. In the Thrive decision, came on the heels of the board inviting and requesting Amici briefs on the issue of how expansive remedies for labor law violations should be. And in this decision, the board in a three to two decision, so the board is made up of five members, in a three to two decision, the board held that in addition to back pay or reinstatement, that any other, quote, direct or foreseeable financial harm, end quote, could be on the table for potential remedies. So this would include costs like out-of-pocket medical expenses, credit card debt. And the what's interesting to note is that the board said this isn't the limit, but rather the floor. This is at a minimum what employees should be eligible for in terms of remedies. So there's a lot of speculation that the board may further expand consequential damages to include emotional distress or other forms of consequential damages. Similar to some of the other cases we've talked about today, the court, or not the court, the board also expressly said that this decision will apply retroactively to cases that were already pending before this case was decided. So the 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 likely result of this will be increased litigation. As Paige referenced, Johnny's Poultry has been longstanding precedent more than 58 years ago. The decision came out and what a Johnny's Poultry warning, as you may hear, is when an employer, it's a standard that the NLRB set to allow employers to hold investigatory meetings with employees. And this is really kind of 
one space where it's a little bit against the grain of of the protections of the National Labor Relations Act because having an employee have to sit in an investigatory meeting with the employer certainly has Section 7 and other implications under the National Labor Relations Act. So to make sure that the employers are not infringing on employees' rights to not be interrogated about union activity, the Johnny's Poultry decision set forth the rules of engagement for an employer holding such a meeting. And then the Sunbelt case, there was concern among management side labor lawyers that the board might overturn Johnny's Poultry or narrow it in the sense of of narrowing an employer's ability to hold a meeting with an employee without, for example, without a union representative present, which is more of the Weingarten rights that that we're not addressing today, but it's another important um, legal standard for the NLRB. So the Sunbelt case, the board affirmed the Johnny's Poultry standard and that Johnny's Poultry warning notably applies whether an employee is in a union or not, or whether or not it's a unionized workplace. And the five components of a Johnny's poultry warning are essentially explaining to the employee at the outset of the meeting what the purpose of the meeting is, explain that there'll be no reprisals for their substantive answers or for their refusal to answer questions, getting the employee's consent to have the meeting, asking the questions in a manner or context that is not hostile to union activity and not coercive questioning, and then not asking questions that exceed the scope of the legitimate purpose for the meeting. So if the meeting is about one narrow issue and the employer is asking about union meetings or who goes to union meetings or who's active and it's not germane to the investigatory issue at hand, then that's going to be over the line and, and arguably unlawful interrogation under the NLRA. So overall, this was a welcome decision for employers because Johnny's Poultry has been the precedent for so long and employers are able to use the Johnny's Poultry warning to make sure that employees understand their rights and also make sure that the employer has the ability to hold these sort of investigatory interviews. Last, we'll end and then we'll open it up to questions. Uh, the decision in FDR LST Media is one that was somewhat uncharacteristically em employer friendly. Um, and it, it talked about employer speech. And in this case, the executive of the company had a Twitter post that essentially said that that he would send the employees back to the salt mine if they unionized. Um, the board emphasized taking into account the context and surrounding circumstances when analyzing whether an employer speech is protected or not or lawful or not. And in, in this context concluded that a reasonable employee would not have viewed the tweet as a threat, but more a facetious and sarcastic remark. So I'll 
we'll open it up to to questions questions i don't know if there's anything in the chat i can't see it at this point nothing in the chat i would just um i would just add on the going back to the thrive decision on the extent of damages um available under under the act uh, i wonder whether we'll see more um, individual employees, you know, from non-union workplaces filing charges um, with the sort of broader availability of, of remedies available um, under that decision. And I, I also wonder whether it might be a stepping stone for the board to, like you said, not only expand upon uh, the damages available to include things like emotional distress, but also expand damages available uh, for other types of violations like failure to bargain uh, cases, I think there uh, there are some cases on the pipeline in the pipeline on that issue as well. I agree. Well, having um, no other questions in the chat, um, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone on behalf of everyone on our panel here. This was great today, a, a lively discussion. I hope everyone learned something from us. Um, and of course, if anyone has questions offline and wants to reach out to either of us, um, obviously feel free. Happy to chat about it. Yeah, thanks everyone. And I guess stay tuned because it seems to change every day these days. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Just want to hop on and say thank you so much to our panel for speaking today and thank you so much to our audience for joining us have a wonderful day everybody thank you